You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you today. Thanks for being here. Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be, so if you want to grab a Bible and go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2, that would be a help to you. And as you're turning there, just one uh, preface. Uh, Going back to last week, KC Maddox preached on Ephesians chapter 4 and did a really good job. And I just want to, I always like just to point this out after someone else's, you know, someone else's preaches at Stonegate, that that's a great thing for everyone. It's a great thing for everyone involved. At the end of the day, it's a real protective mechanism for our church to make sure we're not built around one personality. Um, We don't want that. We want to be built around Jesus, not a person. And it helps uh, you by hearing various voices. It helps us long-term plant churches as we develop the gifts of other people. So that is a good thing. And Part of why I want to just highlight that every time someone else preaches is because people get weird in churches. They, They think if their guy isn't preaching, then God didn't show up that day. That's not true, right? That's not true. And so I just want to make sure you know that, you feel that, and you can celebrate. That's a good thing. And let me just applaud you, because um, I know that other people preach here a lot, and that's by design. And, uh, and I want to applaud you for being open-handed with that and allowing other people to preach often here. That's a great thing for everyone involved. Okay, um, today, Mark chapter 2, uh, I think it's, it probably would be appropriate to celebrate. We're eight weeks into a set of sermons on the Gospel of Mark, and we have just gotten to chapter 2. Right? So, so this, this is a good day for our church family. So chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, let me just kind of preface uh, what's about to happen in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, Mark is about to tell us five different small stories that, uh, that really start the controversy in Jesus' life. Up until this point, everyone loved Jesus. The crowds were surging. Everyone loved Jesus. But it's in this story and the four that follow this story that the controversy starts to stir around this man. That leads to, at the end of chapter 3, or at the, chapter 3, verse 6, um, in that verse, you've got Pharisees and the scribes who are now plotting the death of Jesus. That's where these stories are taking us, down that road. And so this is the first one that we start in. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, really a remarkable story. Verse 1 says this, And when he, talking about Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So if you remember back into chapter 1, he had healed the leper. He had healed Jesus or uh, Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, he is... He is healing. He is casting out demons. Popularity is surging. You've got all of that thing going down in Jesus' life here. He, he comes back into Capernaum, kind of home base for him, probably back in Peter's house. And that's where the rumor mill begins to work. They find out Jesus is there, and here comes the crowds. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this, And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic. You might underline that word. Paralytic, carried by four men. Verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic, underline that word again, lay. So a really wild scene. I've been preaching for a good while now, and I've never had someone cut a hole in the roof and lower a person down, right? I mean, this is a wild scene in the life and and work of Jesus here. And I I want you to focus on that one word, paralytic. You see it twice in the opening couple of verses here, paralytic. And, you know, here's one of the dangers about reading the Bible as opposed to seeing it on a screen. 
If, if we were to see the video of the Bible, I think it would give us a much different impression than reading it sometimes. So one of the dangers in reading the Bible is we'll take a word like paralytic. That word is infused with emotion and heartache and despair and pain. It's infused with all of those things. But we, we have a real kind of a natural tendency to read over that word without feeling any of that. And so I want to stop for a second just to try to help you feel that word for a second. And I want to help you feel that by you listening to the words of a lady named uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. She, when she was in her mid-20s, jumped into a uh, shallow lake and uh, ended up breaking her neck, uh, paralyzed from the, the shoulders down. And listen to her describe that moment and what it feels like, what that word paralytic, what the emotions are behind that word. So listen, listen to what she says here. It hardly seems 26 years ago that I was lying on a hospital bed in suicidal despair, depressed, discouraged. After the hot July afternoon when I took the di that dive into shallow water, a dive which resulted in a severe spinal cord injury which left me paralyzed from the shoulders down without use of my hands and my legs. Before that time, I didn't even know what you called people like me. Who are they? The physically challenged, the mobility impaired, the, the differently abled, the handicapped? I, I just didn't have any contact with people who were hurting or in pain. But that spinal cord injury changed all of that. There I was lying in the hospital bed in the summer of 1967, desperately trying to make ends meet, desperately trying to turn my right side down emotions right side up. In my pain and despair, listen to this, I had begged many of my friends to assist me in suicide. That seems to be a common topic these days, and many disabled people know that. They have a tough time finding life worth living. She goes on to say, I sought to find a final escape, a final solution through assisted suicide, begging my friends to slit my wrists, dump pills down my throat, anything to end my misery. The source of my depression is in, in some ways understandable. I could not face the prospect of sitting down for the rest of my life without use of my hands and without use of my legs. Last phrase. She said, all my hopes seemed dashed. Now that's what it feels like to be a paralytic. So, so we can't just read over that. We, if we're going to get where this text is wanting to take us today, we've got to feel that for a second. I just want to invite you into that. You imagine yourself without the use of your arms and legs for a moment. If you're going to use the bathroom, someone's got to take you to do that. I mean, just imagine that, feel that for just a second. Now, as soon as you feel that, then you're ready to read verse 5. Th this is the irony of the whole passage is built into, into verse 5. We've got a paralytic, okay, just to summarize, a paralytic. His friends have brought him to Jesus. He, he, they just lowered him down from the roof. He, he's, he's lying before Jesus, and this is what Jesus says, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you can picture like a moment where you're at a party and the music is blaring, this is the, mu this is the time that the music stops. And everything goes silent. Now, just imagine yourself being in the room. Here's, if I'm in the room, here's what I'm thinking. There is no mystery about why the paralytic is here. 
There is no mystery about why his friends brought him. Everyone in the room knows that Jesus has been doing miracles. Healed Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, he healed the leper. He has been doing miracles everywhere, casting out demons. Everyone knew, no mystery in the room, that this paralytic was lowered down from the, from the roof so that Jesus could heal his physical condition. Everyone knew that. But yet Jesus is like the only one in the room unaware of that, it seems like. Now, imagine that you're the paralytic for a second. Imagine you're the person that just got carried to, to Jesus crowds there so you have to go up to the roof you just saw your friends dig a hole in the roof so you could be lowered down imagine that's you you're the paralytic and you're expecting in this moment to Jesus for Jesus to say something like this you're healed like walk you're expecting that and all of a sudden Jesus is talking about forgiving your sins now at the risk of sounding a little bit insensitive I think if I was the paralytic I would have probably said something like this Jesus do, do you see right out that, that door? Do you see that, that's the Sea of Galilee right out there? Do you see that? I've watched people swim in that all of my life. I've never been able to. I want to. I think I would have said something like this. You see the beach out there? I've seen people running down that beach all of my life. I've never been able to. I want to. That's what I want. So so I appreciate the whole forgiveness of sins kind of issue that you're bringing to the table. But let me tell you what's a little more urgent than you forgiving my sin. It is that you fix my legs. That's what's urgent. So I I think that's what I would have been feeling and thinking if I'm the paralytic. Okay, so the question is what's going on in this text? Like what is Jesus doing here? And let me give you two things. Here's the first one. I think the first thing Jesus is trying to show us is that situations and sickness— Situation and sicknesses, they are not our deepest problem. They're not our deepest problem. Now, let me just, you know, qualify everything else I'm about to say here by by saying this. It's not, Jesus is not in this passage saying that physical pain, in this instance, this guy being a paralytic, is not a big deal. Jesus is not saying that that is unimportant. He is simply saying it's not as important as some other things. So let's just see that with clarity. If if you keep reading, Jesus is going to heal his physical condition. So it's important. But there are other things he's saying that are more important. See, when this paralytic came to Jesus, here's what he's thinking. The most urgent and the most pressing thing that Jesus could do for me right now. The big thing is Jesus, make my legs work. That's the most important thing. But here's the problem with the paralytic. He didn't know what he needed most. In this passage, this is what Jesus is trying to show this man. That although you think you know what you need, you really don't know what you need. You think you're seeing clearly here, but you're not seeing clearly. There are things that you need more than for your legs to work. Now, I I think this is just a good moment just to pause and for you to be aware of something about yourself. Just for you to heed this warning. That in your life and in my life, when you think about you personally and me personally... For most of us, we really don't know what we need most. That's a harder thing to see than we would give credit to. Like what we really need on the deepest levels of our soul, what we really need most is a really difficult thing to see. It reminds me a few weeks ago, this has actually been a couple months ago now, um, I was having lunch with a church planter. And this guy had been, uh, he planted the church six years ago. And uh, Currently, six years in, they had about 30 adults that had been gathered around this church. 
And so I ask him just the, you know, the question of, uh, tell me where you've been, what is it you're seeing vision-wise, what, where it is it you're trying to take people, it, just walk me through kind of your church, your church's life, where it is it you're going. And it became obvious within moments that, that this guy had no idea of just how to even think about church in some sort of a biblical framework, about how to think about his role as pastor, what it is that God has called him to do as a pastor, what it is that, that his church has been called to do, how they're going to do it. He just had no idea how to even think about those sort of things. I mean, we've got serious, massive problems that surface just instantly as he starts talking about his church. And that led to me asking this big question of the lunch, me looking at this guy and me asking this, we or me saying this, we, we are willing to do whatever is needed to help you. Whatever we can, we, we will do it. So what is it that you need? And I want you to listen to this guy's response. Church is dying on the vine, six years in, 30 people, just not any sort of a framework for even how to think about what his role is. Nobody ever invested into him. Here, here's what he says. What we need, biggest need right now, we need a microphone a new microphone. Now just think about that for a second. I mean, like, it was almost comical. I, a, a microphone? You need a, a microphone. I mean, th now think about that. I mean, the problem is he could not see what he needed. And that is exactly a lot of our approach to God right now. We are begging God for things and just not being able to see what we're needing. Like we are the guy asking for the microphone when Jesus is looking at us saying, can you not see that your need is so much deeper than that? Bigger than that. See, see here was the problem of the paralytic. This paralytic really thought that what he needed most was his legs to be healed. And Jesus is looking at him in this moment saying, do you see that you're really asking for a microphone? Do you see that? Jesus is saying, listen, do you not see that if I healed that, then you're still really not healed? If I give you that, I'm still not giving you what you need most. Like what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is inviting this man who is a paralytic. He's inviting this man to go a step or two deeper. He's inviting this man to get an awareness of his soul where he can see that his discontentment goes much deeper than legs that don't work. He, he's trying to get this man to see that if Jesus healed his legs tomorrow, that deep discontentment in his soul would be back in a month. This is what Jesus is walking this man into. To stop putting his hope in things like legs that work and to start putting his hope in things like Jesus that does work. That, that's what the issue of the passage is. Now, this is really walking us into the big biblical theme of idolatry. So I want to sit on this theme for a few minutes and kind of work through this. This idea of idolatry in the Bible. Now, one of my fears when I say the word idolatry on a Sunday morning is that you're going to think things like statue, golden calf, things like that. When that is not the biblical idea of idolatry, it's much bigger and much more pervasive than that. I like what Richard Keyes, one author, says about idolatry. Um, talking about idolatry, he says, as the main issue to describe unbelief. So he's saying idolatry is the main issue that describes unbelief in the Bible. Like God saying, this is all that I promise to be for you in Jesus 
idolatry is the prime form of saying, God, I don't trust you to be that. I trust this to be that. So idolatry is the primary way the Bible talks about unbelief. So he says that the main issue to describe unbelief, idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life, as if it's in those people's lives or it's over there. He's saying, nope, it's found on center stage, even in your heart. That like in your life right now, idolatry is center stage for us. So when you're thinking idolatry, it is a pervasive and prevalent theme that runs throughout the Bible that describes our unbelief. This unbelief deep in our heart that leads to all of our external problems. So idolatry is the internal issues that we have that lead to the external issues. Idolatry. So let me, uh, let me define idolatry. Idolatry defined. Let me just give you a working definition as you're thinking about idolatry as to what it is. This might be a good one for you. An idol is anything within creation that is inflated to function as God in our life. Anything in creation that's been inflated to function as God. So it's when we take God's good gifts to us, like marriage, like career, like reputation, like possessions. We take God's good gifts to us and we start to turn those gifts into God-like things in our life. It's when we start to look at God's gifts and try to demand from those gifts that they function like God, that they give us what only God can give us. That's idolatry. When we start to look around at God's gifts and say, I'm going to put my hope in that and trust it to give me what only God can. That's idolatry. Okay, now let's think about this paralytic. And let's just try to give a, a visual demonstration of this. This paralytic, if you were to ask him in his life, what was going to make him okay? What, what, would, what would make his life work for him? See, if you were to ask him, fill in the blank. You will be okay if you can get this. See, the this for the paralytic was, if my legs would start working, then I would be okay. Th then my life will be all right. Now, okay, church, this is a really important moment for us. Anytime you hear someone fill in the blank, my life would be okay if I've got this. And that this, whatever that this is, filling in that blank. If it's anything other than Jesus, that is the voice of idolatry speaking. Are we seeing that? See, if, if what you're depending on to make your life work, if what you're depending on to make your life okay, if, if you've got this, if I can just get that, and whatever fills in that blank is anything other than Jesus, you have bought into the lies of idols. Something in your life, a gift from God, has been inflated in your heart to function like God. See, in this moment, what really, like this guy, this paralytic, is depending on to save him is not Jesus. He's depending on being well to save him. See, what he's depending on for rescue is not Jesus on a cross. It's him being able to walk. That's what's going to make him okay. See, w welcome to the problem of idolatry. It's when we fill in that need question with anything other than Jesus, then we have got the voice of idolatry speaking. I, I love how David Pallison talks about idolatry. He says, it's, talking about idolatry, it's 
the most basic question which God poses to the human heart. If you want like the baseline question that the God is posing to you, the baseline question that he's posing to you this morning, here it is. Has something or someone besides Jesus, the Christ, taken title, like become the owner, to your heart's functional trust? Not just what you say, but what you really believe deep down. Has someone or something other than Jesus, the Christ, taken title to your heart's functional trust, to your heart's functional preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? As something other than Jesus filled in the blank for what's going to make you okay with you, for you okay with life. And for the paralytic, his answer was yes. Something other than Jesus was most important. Now, okay, I want to take the, the kind of the light off the, the paralytic for a second, and then I want to kind of start shining it in the room, and specifically in your heart. I want to talk about idols discovered. And I want to give you nine different questions that can just maybe give you a sense of, is there idolatry that's working in you right now? Just to kind of give you some indicators of idolatry in you. So, so nine questions that can help with some indicators here. And, and here's the assumption that I'm working with. I'm working with the assumption that in the room this morning, that although most of us are unaware of it, like we can't see it and haven't recognized it, that idolatry in our life is more present powerful and destructive that we could that we could dare imagine that like right now although it's undetected by a lot of us it's more prevalent powerful and destructive than than we are even starting to see here so i'm working with that assumption in the room like right now that it's all over the place in my heart in your heart and maybe by the grace of god god would use these questions to just help us see that so number one question number one just to help you maybe see some indicators of idolatry number one what do you fear most? Like in your life right now, what do you fear most? See, what you fear most is oftentimes connected to what you love most. You're seeing that? So what, what you fear most is oftentimes connected to what you love most. The, the reason that you're fearful of it is because you put all of your hope, like what you're clinging to for hope is found in that thing. So, so what you fear most is oftentimes connected to what you love most. And, and so just ask yourself the question, what is it right now that you fear most? See, if, if you most fear loneliness, then you'll worship relationships. Whatever I have to do to get it, I'll do it, even if it requires sin. See, if, if you most fear failure in your life, then you will worship at the altar of performance and accomplishment. You, are you seeing that? So what you fear most is a good indicator as to what you love most. So what do you fear most in life? Number two, what do you long for with the most passion? Like what kind of gets you out of the bed in the morning? What do you long for with the most passion? It's another way of just asking the question, what is going to make your life okay? Like if you could just get that, you would be okay. Whatever that is, is what you long for with the most passion. And it's an indicator for what you're trusting to save you, to rescue you. So, so what do you long for with the most passion? What, where, does your, where do your thoughts go when you just have free time thinking? What, what do you long for with the most passion? It's showing you where idols are in your life. Number three, where do you run for comfort? Now, this is a big one. Where, where do you run for comfort? See, Jesus, God, through Jesus, is saying this. I promise to satisfy your soul. I, I will comfort you. But what idols say is, no, Jesus isn't going to be able to do that. You're going to have to depend on me to do that. 
So, so what do you look to for comfort? Like when you have, a sh- I mean, just one of those days where you are stressed out, the world just kind of almost felt like it was falling apart on you today. Like what is it that you go to? And, and there's a million of these. Some people go to video games. Some people go to their hobby. So some it's hunting, some it's fishing. For some people, they go to food. Like, isn't it ironic that there's actually like a, a terminology described a food called comfort food? You, you see what's happening there? It's saying that when we get stressed out, we need a bag of Doritos. Like that's the thing that's going to make us okay in that moment. Are you seeing that? Give me Camposanos for lunch. I'm stressed. See, this, this, is, this is comfort. This is, now, now think about that. Although it's comical, listen to what we're doing in that moment. We are saying, God, I do not trust you to come through on the comfort I need. I am trusting food to do that for me. I mean, can you get a sense of how offensive that would feel to God if you were God? I'm going to trust food, food, to, to, to do what, I mean, if you're God saying, to do what I promise to do for you. It was really interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I had, uh, I got together with two different guys and like almost like back-to-back days here. And uh, here was conversation number one. The guy said, you know, when I get stressed out and when like literally job is, feels like it's falling apart and just life is horrible, man, it's just like a trigger goes off in me that I need alcohol. So the guy is basically an alcoholic. Man, he just would run to alcohol. Whenever, whenever life gets difficult, that's the, the mechanism that he would use to cope and to kind of numb himself, to, to run to for comfort. Now, here was conversation number two. And this guy would have looked down on the guy that runs to alcohol for comfort, or the guy that runs to pornography or sex for comfort. This guy would look down on that. He, he was much more put together. And, and here's what he says. Uh, you know, man, the last couple of years have just been horrible for us. I mean, they, they have been a disaster. Uh, one of our kids has just been off the chart rebellious. It has been a horrible season. And, and then pridefully, he says this. I didn't run to the sex or pornography for that. Uh, you know, I, I didn't run to alcohol to kind of cover that. And then he points out the window and he says, I bought that car. That's what I did. Now, I just want you to think about that for a second. So here's what he's saying. It's a much more just refined way of idolatry, right? That I didn't run to alcohol, something that people would maybe naturally see as destructive or bad. I, I just ran to another purchase to try to numb my soul from what hurts, to try to protect me. To, to try to satisfy me, to try to comfort me. That I just run, ran to the next possession. Now, I just wonder how many of us run from possession to possession, purchase to purchase, just in an effort to make us okay with us for today. Just, just for an effort to comfort us for today. Number four. What angers you most? What angers you most? Th- this is a really good indicator for, for where idolatry lies in you. Where, where you explode in anger, where you respond with like a 10 on the scale of emotion to like a two or three type scenario. So just think back over the last, uh, let's just say month of your life into those moments where you have gotten angry. Emotion has swelled to the surface for you. Think about those things. And I'm going to go on a really, just a really short and really strong limb and, and say that I'm going to doubt that any of those had to do with things that really upset God and made God angry. I just doubt that if you look at the last 30 days of your life, the things that really angered you, I'm just doubting that most of those things made up things that that God would be angered at. And and here's what I'm assuming about those things. That that it wasn't a God issue, it was an idolatry issue. 
It wasn't God that was upset at those things. It was your substitute God, your idol that was upset at those things. See, when we respond with a 10 on the emotion scale to a two issue, it's because our idols have been threatened, our idols have been slapped, and they didn't like it very much. See, okay, so if, if, you're, if you've made your kids an idol, when you feel like the future of your kid is threatened, what happens? Papa Bear comes out, right? Like it's time to, to tear someone's head off their body. I mean, th that's how we respond, right? Mama Bear, Papa Bear comes out. Why? It's not because in this moment God was upset. It's because in this moment the idol of our kid was upset. That's why. See, if our idol is the, the approval of other people, the verdict that they're giving us in life, like we want respect and we want it all the time from people, and all of a sudden someone doesn't give us the respect that we think we deserve, and we respond not with a 2 on the scale, but a 10 on the scale. Why is that? It's because our idol of respect just got slapped and it didn't like it very much. And so we respond with a 10 when it's really a 2 issue. Just take a look at your life where you respond with emotions that are way like disproportionate to the situation. That, that is showing you where idolatry is under the surface. It's just indicating down underneath that, that you've got idols that have been wrapped around your heart. Number uh, five. So number four, what angers you most? Number five, who must you please? Like whose opinion are you living for? M maybe it's a parent's opinion. Maybe it's a boss's opinion, a friend's opinion. That means you are on the desperate search for the approval of that person. Just to hear them to pronounce over your life, well done, you. And, and can I just remind you of this? If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, God's already said that over you. He's already said it. You're living for what God has already given you. Number six, what's the first thing you want people to know about you? So like you start a conversation and what, what does your heart naturally want them to know? Like the accomplish, you know, accomplishment list that you have in your past, that you were able to, to get that done. All of these things in your past, you know, that you have really succeeded at. Maybe it's this possession that you have. Maybe it's how you are so put together as a family and you're the perfect parent. I mean, just look at how your kids turned out, right? So, so what is it that you want people to know about? You know, it's interesting. After the first service, a lady walked up to me and said, you know, I find in that one, it's not so much what I want them to know about me. It's what I don't want them to know about me. It doesn't, it doesn't produce in me a, a loud, arrogant type of a, of a posture to people. It, it produces in me a pulled back, shrinking back from people. See, that, that's tracing down to idolatry underneath the surface. Number seven, what has caused you to be angry with God? What's, what's caused you to be angry with God? And, and this is a big one. When, when you think about anger with God, do you know why? And, and just as a side note. To varying degrees, virtually every one of us have some frustration with God, to varying degrees. But I, I want you to see where that frustration, what it's rooted in. It's rooted in that we have closed our hand around one of God's gifts. For the paralytic, it was his legs. For you, maybe it was your career going this way, or your family going this way, or no losses in your life, no deaths in your life. We had closed our hand around something and said, God, if you, like, if you start to kind of mess with this thing, we're going to have a big problem. Because this thing is what I'm trusting in functionally right now to satisfy me, to make me okay. 
This is what I need for life to be all right. And the reason we get really frustrated with God is because God in his mercy and grace comes with a bat periodically and pulls our hand, swipes our hand free from that thing. Opens our hand from that. And the reason we're frustrated with God is because we don't want that thing to be negotiable. Because we're really building all of our hope around that thing. We're clung to that thing as the thing that will make us okay. And when God takes it out of our hand, we don't like it. Why? Because we're not looking to God for all we need in life. We're looking to God plus that thing. That's why we're frustrated. So see, your frustration in God is rooted in idolatry. Number eight, what do you look to to validate yourself? Like what is it in your life that you look to to make you okay with you? Make you, you know, you have, now you have got it if you can get this to validate yourself. Uh, one of my favorite kind of series of movies are the, the whole Rocky series. And if you'll remember that, that one, uh, Rocky, where Rocky is about to go after Apollo Creed. You remember that moment? He's talking to his wife before that fight, and she's basically just trying to get it. Why are you doing this, Rocky? You're about to get your brains beat out. What are you doing? And listen to his response as to why he's going to fight Apollo Creed. He says it like this. The only thing I want to do is to go the distance. Y'all remember that? Got I and the tiger like in the background right now. The only thing I want to do is go the distance. That's all. Nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with Creed. And then he says this. If I go them 15 rounds, I think he missed a couple of English classes along the way. If I go them 15 rounds and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know that I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. Virtually every one of us right now, we came through the doors this morning, we are looking at something, every one of us, we're looking at something, either God or something else, to make sure we're not another bum from the neighborhood. Every one of us. And the truth is, like, this morning, rather than looking to God to make us not another bum, like, he's pronounced over us, you're, you're mine, you're a son, you're a daughter. But rather than looking to God for that, we start to look for things like, to, to career, for things like that. So if we can just accomplish this in our career, this promotion, this amount of prestige, if we can just get there, then we're okay. Then we're validated. You know, it's, it's interesting. When you think back about um, previous cultures and idol worship and how you would have cultures that literally dads would sacrifice their kids for their gods. And it seems so barbaric to us, doesn't it? But, but here's the truth. There are many dads in the room right now who your kids are on the idol. You are sacrificing them on the idol of your God called career. Just allow that to settle over us for a second. So, so we looked at things like career for that. We looked at things like family to make sure we're not another bum. If, if my family can just hang together, if we can just make this marriage work, if we can just make sure our kids turn okay, out okay, then we'll be okay. Some of us are looking to possessions for that. If I can just get this next toy or this next thing, then I'll be all right. Some of us are looking to our image and our reputation for that. Some of us are looking for our physical beauty. If I can just lose, th you know, this many pounds, if I can just look like this, then I'll be okay. And God all the time is saying, listen, then you're working for something I've already given you. I've already given you that. One of the most significant moments in my life 
came when I started to grow in the awareness of how much of my life, good and bad, was driven by, like the drive shaft of my life, driven by a search for validation and approval. Good, good and bad things. I mean, it validated working way too hard on certain things. I mean, that, that was, if I could just accomplish that, then I could get it. I mean, it, it led into promiscuity. If I could just get that, then I'd be okay. But it also has fueled a lot of really good things, like preaching some days. See, that search for validation can go in all of those different directions, good and bad. But it's that drive shaft in our life that rather than looking to God and working out of the approval that he's given us, we're working to try to gain that approval. So what is it that you're looking to validation for? Number nine, last one. What do you sacrifice the most for? What do you sacrifice the most for? See, where your money and your time and your energy and your effort most freely go in your life, where they most freely go, that is showing you what you most intensely love. See, where you will most naturally spend your money is what you love most. What you'll most naturally, where you most naturally spend your time is what you love most. See, what you'll naturally just, without, without even thinking, what you'll sacrifice for is it's showing you what deep in your heart those buried idols that are underneath there. What you're depending on to save you and to rescue you. It would be a great grace for you and I this morning if God would meet us here and show us where it is that we are looking to things other than Jesus for our hope, for our life, for our satisfaction, for our approval and our comfort. Amen? God be a great grace to us. So he, let's jump back into the story now. The paralytic. He, here was the problem with the paralytic. When he came to Jesus, he is thinking this. If I can just be made well, if my legs will just work, then I'll be okay. And Jesus is saying, nope, that's not going to fix you. I could make you well right now and you still wouldn't be well. I could heal your legs, but you still would need much more healing. Jesus is showing him, that, listen, your sicknesses and your situation is not your deepest problem. But even bigger, here's what Jesus is showing us in this passage. The big idea is he's saying this, God alone can heal your deepest needs. God alone can do that. It's only God that can heal what you need and give you what you need most. Only God can. So verse 5. Jesus says, when he sees their faith, he said to the paralytic these five grace-filled words, Son, your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. If you keep reading there, this is where the controversy really erupts, verse 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, it's interesting. The scribes and the religious leaders, they knew their Bibles. And they were actually interpreting the Bible exactly right. They got the Bible right. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can do that. They, they got their Bible right. They got Jesus wrong. Like the logic of the passage goes like this. Only God can forgive sins. Yes, that's a true statement. Jesus in this passage is forgiving sins. True statement. Therefore, here's the logic. Jesus must be God. That, that's the whole logic of the passage. That in this passage, Mark is showing us that this guy, Jesus, that we're, we're seeing here, this guy, Jesus, is God, and God alone can actually forgive your sin. It's only him. He alone can heal your deepest wounds. 
He alone can fix your deepest problems. And here is the deepest problem that he's addressing. Forgiveness. He's, he's looking at this paralytic and saying, your deepest problem is not your legs. Your deepest problem is a heart that is worshiping idols. And here's what I'm pronouncing over you right now in this moment. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. The, the good news of the gospel goes like this. That in Jesus, God will forgive you of your worst sins. Namely, all the idolatry that's in you and in me. That he will pronounce over us, just like this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. But can I tell you, it even goes maybe a step deeper than that. It's out of that forgiveness that God also says this. Not only am I going to forgive you in that moment, I'm going to be the one that will satisfy your soul. I'm forgiving you and I'm satisfying you. It's interesting. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, um, the author tells us that, that God has created us with, with eternity written into our hearts. So, so if you want to think about this in some metaphors, maybe you could think of it like this. That when God created you, he created you with a slot in the deepest parts of your soul that only God can fill. Sex can't fill it. Relationships can't fill it. Career can't fill it. Another possession can't fill it. Only God can fill that slot. Another metaphor. When God created you, he created you with a hunger deep in your heart. In John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. Jesus is saying this. I alone can satisfy that hunger. Nothing else can do it. No, none of my gifts can do that. Only I, God alone, can do that. Another metaphor. He's going to say this, that, that you were created with a heart that is thirsty. You, you have a deep thirst in your soul. And every person on the planet is trying to figure out what it is that's going to quench that thirst. Some look for pornography. Some look at sex, some look at relationships, some look at career, money, possessions, family, all those things. And God is saying, the only thing that can quench your thirst is me. That's it. The, listen, the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God forgives us and promises to satisfy us. That is the great news of the gospel that Jesus is announcing here. So in light of that, two responses and we'll be done. Two responses. Like what would be an appropriate response to what we're seeing in this passage? Here's number one. Appropriate response number one would go like this. In light of us having a deep problem in our heart that only God can fix, the, the, the response, the appropriate response would be for every one of us in the room to run to Jesus to fix our issues. That, that we would be a people who are actually running to Jesus. That we wouldn't just be people who are aware of our idolatry. Aware of, rather than looking to, to Jesus for all that we need for life, that we're looking to these other things. That we wouldn't just be aware of that, that we'd actually run to Jesus out of that. that that's what you call repentance, right? This, is what, this would be an appropriate response to the text this morning. You know, it's really interesting just watching people as the light bulb comes on of idolatry that, wow, there are things in my life, like when I answer the question, what is going to make me okay? I'm filling that in with, with things other than Jesus. It's amazing watching that little light bulb come on, but I've just noticed that the next one oftentimes doesn't come on. Like you would think that, we would think this, okay, wow, I've got an awareness of that, so maybe I should actually now forsake that and run to Jesus instead of that. But, but I just noticed that there's like a real tendency to sit in that awareness. And, and can I just encourage you this morning, an appropriate response is not just saying, wow, there's idolatry in me. 
wow, that, that's really ugly. It's all over the place in me. But the re- appropriate response would be to recognize that, become aware of that, and then to forsake that, to see that, acknowledge that, and then to run away from that and run to Jesus who promises not only to forgive you for your idolatry, but to satisfy your heart in it. So number one, we run to Jesus. And here's the great news about Jesus. He is the only Savior that when you get him will fulfill you. And listen to this, when you fail him will forgive you. Just listen to that for a second. There's no other gods, no other idols out there that are going to say that to you. Jesus alone promises to be a Savior that when you get him, he'll fulfill you. And when you fail him, he'll forgive you. So, so I think appropriate response would be to run to Jesus this morning. Here would be the second one. Is that we would be a people who see that Jesus heals our deepest needs, have been healed by Jesus, like we are tasting the satisfaction found in Jesus, and are now bringing others to Jesus. Now we're bringing others to this person, Jesus, this God, Jesus, who actually has the power to heal the deepest needs of our soul. In light of it being Easter, I want to kind of finish on this idea. That, that one of the most remarkable things about this passage is this guy's four friends, isn't it? I mean, this guy is fortunate to have four friends who would do whatever it took to get him paralytic, can't move, to Jesus. So let me just point out four things about these friends really quickly. Four things about him. Number one, or actually three things about him. Here, here's the first one. These four friends carried this guy. They, they, they carried him. This guy was not going to make it on his own. So, so they got a mat, they put the guy on the mat, and they carried this man to Jesus. I, this is just kind of alerting us to the normal way God works in history. That, that God normally works not by just like getting a person or saving a person. Like he could have looked at Rodney and said, or me and said, bam, he's saved. That's not how it worked. That, that how God normally works in history is he uses friendships, befriending people, showing the gospel to people, pointing people to just friends who are doing that, friends who are willing to carry their buddy to Jesus. That is God's normal way of working. It's his normal way of of, of saving. It's interesting. I read this a long time ago that out of the roughly 40 some odd healings in the New Testament that Jesus looks at a person and heals them. It's something like 34 out of those roughly 40 were brought to Jesus by friends. And just see that, that, that God has invited you into that. Like he's saying, yes, I alone can heal. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to allow you the privilege of working with me in that. For you to be active participants in that healing of your friend, your family member, your neighbor, your coworker. You get to join me in that. These four guys carried their friends to Jesus. Here's the second one. The four friends were persistent. Look at verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, verse 4, it doesn't go on to say this, they gave up. That's not what it goes on to say, is it? It wasn't that they hit an obstacle at the crowd, they couldn't get through him, and they just get, that's not how the story goes. That they were very persistent in their pursuit of this guy. They were determined to do whatever it took to get their friend all the way to Jesus. And, and I just wonder how many of us, when we're thinking about friends and family, people that we really want to meet Jesus, I just wonder how many of us, when we've hit the obstacles to that, have just given up, kind of written them off. They're just too far gone. They are beyond grace. Can I just remind you that God saved you? 
So I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that I, I think his grace would probably also be strong enough and reach far enough to save them. So I, I just wonder if there's anybody that we need to get like back in front of us that we've written off that needs to be like brought back into that where we're praying for them, offering invitations to them, befriending them, pointing them to Jesus. I just wonder if anybody needs to be brought back into that. that we've just given up on. But, but thirdly, you also see this, that the four friends were creative. And I love what it says in verse 4. And when they, got, when, when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowds, they, they didn't give up. They hit an obstacle and, and they, they started brainstorming. Like, what's going to be the solution to that? And one of them in the midst of this brainstorming session said, the roof. I love that. That's innovation, first century style right there. So it goes on. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I love that. They were creative in the ways that they tried to befriend, the way, ways they tried to get him to Jesus. They're very creative in that. And I just want to invite you into that, to asking God for creative ways to connect to people so you can point them to Jesus, to, to ask God to do that. And here's why all of this is so important. Here's why I just want to urge you toward this. Look at verse 5. Th these, these four friends, they carried him. They were diligent. They were creative. And listen to what these four friends got to hear. Ch uh, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, and that's an interesting just phrase right there, isn't it? That Jesus is saying, I'm looking at these four friends, their faith, and I'm doing something in response to that faith. But when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, could we not use that to be set around here a lot more? Your friends, my friends, our friends, for, for Jesus to pronounce over them, your sins are forgiven. But Laura and I were just recounting last night that uh, about a year ago, it was kind of the culmination of a really about a two or three year project and uh, where we had just started befriending a, a person at the gym. Her name was Jen. I mean, we just love Jen. She's a great lady. We just love being around her. Um, we actually started going to her uh, little workout class at the gym. I was like one of 30 people in the class that was a guy. I mean, it was partway humiliating, warrior fusion. I mean, it was terrible. Right? And so, but, but it was worth it for us to just to get to know Jen. So we start befriending Jen, getting to know Jen, and uh, just trying to, as gently as we could, but persistently as we could, point her to Jesus. And then that, that came with invitations to come to church with us. And there's always some excuse. I mean, the alarm didn't go off. Something came up. This thing happened. That thing happened. And it just never seemed to work out. And then last year on Easter, she came. And do you know what we got to hear God pronounce over her last Easter? Daughter. Your sins are forgiven. And man, I pray that for you. I pray, I want more of that in my life. Man, I want to be like the four friends who are seeing that happening all the time. Amen? Let, let me close it with this. You know, there's an interesting question in verse 9. Verse 9, this question is asked. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Which is easier of those two? Now, in the context of this passage, I think you've got this answer to the question. In the context of this passage, you would say this. It is more difficult to heal this man's legs. That that's what's most difficult. And here's why in the context of this passage. Jesus could say, listen, your sins are forgiven, and nobody would know. There's no way to actually test that because that's an internal reality. But if Jesus says, hey, pick up your mat and walk, 
everyone in the room is going to know instantly if that happened or not. So in the context of this passage, the most difficult thing is healing this man. But we know in the context of the rest of the book of Mark that it's actually much, 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 much more difficult for Jesus to forgive this man. Amen? So here's what we know in the context of the book of Mark. We know that the only way this man could be forgiven by God is for Jesus to leave the luxuries of heaven and trade that for a life on earth where he perfectly lived in our place. We know that the only way he could pronounce forgiveness over this man was to leave the comforts of heaven and exchange the comforts of heaven for the torment of a cross where all of our sin was laid on him. We know that at the end of the day, the only way Jesus could pronounce over this man that he is forgiven was for him to, in a sense, to become the, the paralytic. For his feet and his hands to be nailed to the cross where he could not move them as the sin of the world came crushing down on him. That is the only way he could pronounce over this man these five words, son, your sins are forgiven. And it's when we start to see and sit in that, that verse 12 becomes a reality in our heart. That we begin to say things just like the crowd. We have never seen things like this. Amen? Let's pray together. just give you a second to sit in that and just pray that the spirit of God would press down the things that would be most helpful and wipe away the things that aren't helpful this morning. And there's no doubt some of us in the room who we've never taken that initial step of faith toward Jesus. We've never had that moment where we have expressed faith and and the God of the universe has forgiven our sin and saved us. And man, if that's you, if there's never been that moment in your life, what a wonderful morning for that. For, For you to hold your life up to God and say, God, I am trusting you to take all my sin and put it on Jesus and to take all of Jesus's perfect life and place that on me. God, I'm trusting you to save me because of that, to forgive me because of that, to adopt me into your family because of Jesus. And the great news of the gospel this morning is that God stands so willing and so ready to do that. for the believers in the room, those who that moment has happened. Let this this be a reminder to you that God promises not only to forgive our sin, but to satisfy our souls. And wherever we are looking to idols to do that, it's a hopeless pursuit. So may this be a morning that we get on our face before God, repenting to God, expressing to God that, that God, I have turned from you looking to idols to satisfy my soul. But God, this morning, I'm recognizing that. I'm turning from that. God, sever my love for that idol. And God, I'm turning to you and running to you, trusting that you will be the one that satisfies the deepest cravings of my heart. So God, it's to that end that we pray. And God, I pray that you would work that into our church family. It's in your good name we ask it.
Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.